Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring Order of Canada recipient, Reverend Dr. Sherry DeNovo. I want to thank uh, the Reverend Sherry DeNovo, Order of Canada recipient, for being my guest today. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, I, I've been a long admirer of yours since I since my time in Ontario. I followed your career through Ontario politics. So to even speak to you today has been a is a massive like uh, fanboy experience for me right now. So thank you. <laughs> well, you're welcome. It's a joy. <laughs> um, uh, Sherry, uh, my first question I ask all my guests is the same, but it's a little different for each, depending on their background. For you, it's where does your faith come from? Uh, well, life. I wasn't raised uh, in a household that went to church or really observed any religious uh, uh, experience at all. Um, I was raised in a social justice agnostic slash atheist household. Uh, so I came by faith um, without, I like to say to some of the folk that walk into our church, without any toxic background. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I didn't have any negatives about faith. I, I knew the stories of Jesus. They're sort of out there in the culture. Um, there was something about the figure of Jesus that moved me. Um, and then, you know, life experience when I, I, I had a successful business at, at one point um, recognized very much that my moods per month were based on my billings and thought there's something wrong with this way of living. Um, had two small children at that point, walked into a church that was inclusive and uh, just happened to walk into the right one. Um, United Church, great minister, and got more and more involved with our family there. So it was a process. And then uh, at that point, uh, my children's father died uh, in an accident and experienced what faith communities can really mean to one when a crisis or trauma happens. And um, there's no substitute. I mean, people arriving at the door with casseroles to the support, to the love, to the feeling of community that, I don't know, you get too many other places. So so a whole lot of reasons go into why I'm here now. Um, But but certainly it was a process. And as I say, not one I was born into. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I want to talk about what's happening in today's world with COVID-19. Uh, I'm finding, and I'm not sure as a reverend you're finding, more people are trying to find a purpose in life and trying to reach out for something bigger in life. Are you finding that with your uh, congregation, that people are actually reaching out, new, new faces are walking into your ministry? Yes, without a doubt. I mean, we certainly have far more watching our online services. We went back in person for a few weeks there. And then, of course, this current second wave hit, and now we're back online. Um, But uh, either in person when we were open or certainly online, way more people are following our services than did prior to COVID. So there's something happening there. I also think it, it, you know, the amount of stress in people's lives has just gone through the roof. Um, Whether your job is impacted or not, uh, you're feeling it. And everybody knows of somebody who knows of somebody who's been affected in some way. And of course, if your parents and your children are going to school, you're living with this uncertainty on a day-to-day basis. Or if you're at the other end of life, if you're in long-term care, you know, you're living with risk every day. So uh, yeah, it's affecting everyone. And um, you either take that, you know, effect out in healthy, positive, I think, searching ways for purposes of you know, your purpose in life or in negative ways. And I'm seeing both. Well, as someone who has been affected by COVID-19, who actually did get it at the beginning of the uh, the, pand- the quote-unquote, uh, when it was actually uh, called a pandemic in March, I can say it, it, it did start me thinking about, because I, I come from a, sort of the same lines as uh, you growing up as an agnostic family. I wouldn't say they were atheists, but we did go to the United Church in our hometown of Newcastle, Ontario. I grew up, uh, there was some issues where I had lost a loved one and I had a crisis of faith so there was moments when during the uh, when I had COVID where I started to think about 
there has to be something higher out there. So uh, when I'm talking to people like yourself and uh, the Reverend Michael Korn, it, it, it it, it, it gives me a sense of people are like me are reaching out to faith leaders like yourself who are trying to help them through this troubling time. I'm so sorry that you had COVID and, and are you okay now? Or... Uh, there, there are some issues that are still lingering, but overall it's not as bad as it was say in March when I was at the height of it, I got a mild case of it. Wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, um, Back to your childhood. One of the areas I want to talk about is in 1971, you were one of the only women to sign. I want to make sure I get the name of the declaration here right. Oh, I, I had it here two seconds ago. Oh, the We Demand uh, document. The We Demand. I, I was the only woman, actually, um, to sign on to that. And uh, that was the first big demonstration for what we called then gay rights uh, in Canada, there was a demonstration in person on on uh, on Capitol Hill. I couldn't make that, but I did sign on to the document. Um, and really, when you look at the demands of that document, we've pretty much achieved them all, which is amazing. So that gives hope to the activists of this of generation to just say, you know, keep on, because what seemed at that time uh, really utopian, quite frankly, if we were to admit it to ourselves, has, has all come to pass uh, in this country. And of course it didn't happen um, naturally. It happened because of people who were willing to stand up and be identified and come out of the closet and uh, do what needed to be done. So I, I'm, I'm proud of that, but uh, it is truly a story of uh, incredible hope. You know, We can achieve just about anything if we keep on keeping on. So do you see similarities of what's going on today with the Black Lives Movement, with the Indigenous Lives Movement, and with what the We Demand movement that was in the 1970s? Do you see similarities, or are they two separate entities? Oh, absolutely, there are similarities. And we, we forget, of course, that you know in the era of the 60s and 70s, there was a huge uh, uprising of racialized peoples. You know, I mean, we think about the Black Panthers, think about, you know, other, uh, and then be, before that, in the civil rights movement, you know, people like Martin Luther King, et cetera. I mean, there have been numerous uprisings um, and, and great strides have, have happened, um, but, particularly where racism is concerned and where Aboriginal rights are concerned, there's so much farther to go. Um, I mean, I feel this way too, as, you know, as a woman, I mean, you know, when you look at what we've gained in, you know, the LGBTQ2S uh, movement versus what we've gained from feminism, yeah, that we've gained a lot, but there's still such a long way to go. Uh, so again, um, kudos, uh, great. We've shown it can, can change the world. And now let's keep changing it because we, you know, there's, there are many, many people suffering still. Now, in the 70s, and yet again, I wasn't there, so I, I, I can't speak, so that's why I, I want to have you talk about it a bit, is in today's society, we find a divided population. We have the right versus the left. And I don't think there's any way around that. There are some people in the middle, but the majority of people are for something or against something. There's no middle ground anymore. Um, With the We Demand uh, manifesto, did you find that or were people more uh, uh, accepting of it when you first uh, initially brought up the idea of the We Demand? Absolutely not. I mean, we were a fringe little group of radicals. I mean, that's what we were, a tiny fringe group of radicals that proposed utopian ideas in a society that was profoundly homo and transphobic. I mean, you know, uh, uh, the one big difference you see in the we demand demands and now uh, is the elevation of trans rights which, you know, was just not even a glimmer in our eyes back then, really. Um, So, I mean, uh, again, um, it shows you how far, how fast a movement can come. I mean, it's 50 years, got it, but but still, um, you know, a lot of those demands we, we attained, you know, way before I think we probably thought we would. Um, not that they're all there. And, and of course, there wasn't this consciousness 
back then of how white the movement was and how male the movement was and all of that and how, you know, cisgendered the movement was. Um, so we've learned along the way uh, as well. But, but uh, you know, it is a phenomenal moment of hope. I mean, I have a picture that, um, I have a book forthcoming in March called The Queer Evangelist. And the picture on the front is of me with my then girlfriend, also in 1971, at the first Pride event in Toronto, which wow. was on the island, which was a picnic where we said there were, I don't know, we probably said there were 200 people. I think there were 80, you know? but anyway, uh, but I mean, this, this, I'm amazed somebody had a camera. I mean, uh, <laughs> there's this historic moment um, of celebration too back then. And, you know, in a, in a sense, I've always felt like the young radical, even though I'm old now, I still feel like the young radical in comparison to some of those of my age. Um, so, you know, that was the case then. It's still the case. So I guess two lessons here. Yeah, you don't, ha you don't have to get more conservative as you grow older. It, you know, uh, no, you don't. In fact, I feel like I'm more radical, if anything. Um, and second of all, um, fight for, for the, you know, there was a, a student uh, slogan in the, in the 60s in France. It's, you know, uh, be realistic, only demand the impossible. And I think that should hold all of us. Be realistic, only demand the impossible. How do we be realistic in today's society where the age of Twitter, the age of uh, Facebook, the age of social media is if you try to be real, people will attack you for it. How do you be real in a society that is so divided like we are? Well, I think, first of all, the division in, the, in a society is a great call upon those progressives for, for a general term um, to reach across the aisle. Um, there's huge work that needs to be done, and I learned this in political circles. It doesn't mean we have to agree. We can disagree about everything. But in political circles, I quickly learned who had principles and who didn't. And let's, let's first of all, face a reality that partisanship never wants to face up to, and that is no one wants a one-party state. So if you're willing to accede that we need difference, that we need an ideological debate, then we can somehow come together to work on issues, which is... You know, most of the bills that I got passed were tri-party bills, which we initiated in, in the Ontario legislature back then. So I, I passed more private members bills than anybody in Ontario's history, I learned later. Um, and, you know, with, with very little power. I mean, we're a third party, 10 members at one point when I was first elected. So it shows you can work across the aisle. You can get people of different uh, ideologies to agree and and to move forward step by step by step. So that is a possibility still. Having said that, I mean, I think we're living in a world now where it's really critical um, that we uh, take stands on certain issues. And I'm thinking here of the climate crisis. I mean, again, to that slogan of, you know, be realistic, only demand the impossible. It may seem impossible right now if you look at the data, if you look at what's happening in terms of climate, uh, the climate crisis, um, and how slowly, if, if, if at all, our governments are moving on it. But it's going to demand, at a certain point, it's going to demand the impossible of us. It's going to demand that we turn very quickly. And we have historical data now to show that we can. Look at COVID. Look at the Second World War when our governments completely shifted. All of a sudden, they found money to do things that there was no money for before. It's amazing how that happens, you know, when you're facing a crisis. All of a sudden, the money's there. So, again, I think the climate crisis is the next crisis that we just have not wrapped our heads around politically yet that we're going to have to. I mean, how many wildfires in California, how many you know people have to die in the developing world for it to come to our attention? I guess when it starts happening right here at home more. And I think, you know, that's where that's where we're going to have to make a quantum leap. And it's not going to be just, you know, uh, inch by inch. It's going to be dramatic. Yeah, I think you're right, because I think uh, that we have a society that is so ingrained in the idea that, and I, I'm not speaking generalized, I'm just saying there are people out there who think if it's not happening right here, it's not happening, right? If I don't have COVID, it's not real. If I don't see uh, the effects of climate change with a wildfire burning down my area, it's not real. So I agree with that. And to teach people to get their heads wrapped around it is hard because they're so ingrained and the older people get, I, I find the old people, people get, they might be ingrained in their thinking and that's how they're going to think for the rest of their lives. 
Yeah, I mean, I have more hope for for seniors. Um, I mean, I, 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 as I said, I don't think I, I'm I'm more radical than I used to be. I, I don't think you have to get more conservative as you get old. And in fact, the people that I hang out with that are old, you know, old comparatively speaking, um, you know, don't feel that way um, at all. Um, but I mean, here's the thing: I, I, it will, it is already affecting us. We just cannot see it yet. Um, and certainly, when we look at the rising insurance rates for just about anything you do these days. That's a reflection of what's happening out there in the world, um, but um, but yeah, it will come home to roost. Um, we we really do have to do something about it. Greta's right, you know. I mean, they're right. Uh, so so so. I mean, again. Um, Governments are, are playing the PR game right now. I mean, they're all saying things and they're not doing much. So independent of political strife, quite frankly. So this is a time, again, to, to get a little postpartisan and to s- simply have a race to the top rather than a race to the bottom in terms of what we can do to, uh, to affect this. But we will have to do a dramatic, a dramatic shift. And we've shown we can. COVID showed you know, recently we can. Second World War showed we could. So, um, so I'm hopeful even about that. I'm hopeful that when it does, when the wildfire does start at the corner of your street, that somebody's going to wake up and say, okay, now's the time. Here's the billions of dollars needed. We're going to shift. True. Um, you've said the word uh, radical a few times in our interview, and it's only been 15 minutes into it. You are known in Toronto and online through your podcast, The Radical Reverend. Um, how did that come about? Because I find that interesting being a reverend and being happily known as the Radical Reverend. How did that come about? Well, first of all, the show is is at least twenty years old. I was trying to figure out exactly when I started. I don't think the records are there, but it's it's twenty years old. I, I did a hiatus a little bit when I was first elected and came back, changed the title to Three Women because we were just political, and I just had three women on representing three different political points, speaking about issues. But you know, by and large, I've been on air as the Radical Reverend forever now, it seems, and um, and podcasting, you know, in the last year or so. So. Um, so absolutely. Um, and it was always that. I mean, I, my concern when I started the show was the only Christian voices you seem to hear on mainstream media was the right wing was and, you know, hashtag the Christian right is neither, as I always say. Um, so now you see the devastating effects of those who call themselves Christian uh, in the United States and not just there. Um, and, and so I thought we needed a progressive voice of faith, not just Christian, as it turns out. I try to focus on all faiths, um, but certainly from, the, from a Christian perspective, where is the progressive voice? Um, it's so needed and and so absent, and and I, you know, we have to look the, in the mirror when we when we say this, of course, because where have we been? I mean, why have we not, as Jesus would say, let our light shine? You know, <laughs> um, you know, why haven't we done that? And so I thought, time to do it, and I I keep trying to do that um, in both my workday and also. On media. So how did the show come about, though? Did the radio station come approach you? Because, like you said, it, it was in the early 90s, late 90s when you first got the show, and you don't traditionally think of a left-leaning reverend to come on the air and uh, preach the gospel or talk about faith issues. So how did the radio station say, you know what, we're going to choose you and we're going to get you up on, the, uh, up on the station every week to preach and talk about the, the radical reverend that you are? Well, I, it's first of all, it's CIUT 89.5 FM, so shout out to them. Um, it's now the only alternative radio station left in Toronto. Uh, back in the day, there were there were a few. Uh, now there's only us. Um, we're partly funded out of University of Toronto, but also funded by listeners. So it shows you what nonprofit media can do. Um, and it, they didn't look for me. I actually started at the, the station. I was invited by uh, a feminist that I knew in Toronto to just come and be part of a kind of panel on issues. And then the feminist collective that I was part of kind of disintegrated. And I, you know, for one reason or another, I was the only one left standing. And so then I took the, sh- took 
that time slot in a new direction as the Radical Reverend with the blessing of, of a, a number of station managers from then till now um, and uh, have kept it going. And uh, uh, it's, it's an incredible broadcast range. I mean, we're from Buffalo to Barrie, from Kitchener to Coburg. I mean, thousands listen in. Um, uh, and podcasts, of course, as you know, um, makes, the, makes that audience even larger. But, uh, but I mean, it's just been a joy to do. Um, it's been work. Now I have a wonderful uh, producer, uh, shout outs to Jake, who, uh, who does all the online, because of course we're all you know, doing it from our homes right now, who's made that a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, I, I just felt that there needed to be that voice out there. And so I tried to be at least one of them. Yeah. Now, with the rise of a show like that in a non-traditional uh, sense of a, a religious-leaning uh, show, did you get hate? Did people reach out and say, why are you doing this? Your, your voice is not the voice that we want to listen to. We want to listen to what the actual gospel is preaching, not the radical gospel that you're preaching. Well, first of all, the, the gospel is radical. <laughs> it's Which very, we will talk about later because yeah, there's, a, okay. there's an episode that I want to talk about for sure. sure. Well, certainly the hate started way before the Radical Reverend show. Um, when I did uh, Candace first legalized same-sex marriage in 2001 before the law changed, um, that reached, you know, that was reported on when uh, it was vetted. Um, only because the people in our registrar's office thought that Paula, P-A-U-L-A, was a man's name, and so they made a mistake. Um, <laughs> but it still was a real marriage and really happened and was really vetted, and we were overjoyed. So, um, you know, at, at that point, we heard even from, uh, uh, and, I, and this is a name that might be familiar to some, Westboro Baptist Church, um, from their minister down there, who posted online at that point, there's, there was a, uh, an online just back then, um, and said the lesbian sodomite juggernaut has rolled on in Toronto, which I thought was hilarious. And a few of us in our congregation thought we should have t-shirts printed up with that on. But I mean, that the hatred started back then. The hatred started um, as, as soon as I was in ministry in, in the city of Toronto, really. Um, and I still get, I, I pretty much one, at least it's, you know, it's petered down over the years, but I mean, at least once a month I get a letter or I get an email or I get a comment on social media, probably on social media more than once a month. Um, that's, that's hate based. And that has to do, it, it's come, comes from somebody who thinks they're Christian, uh, who thinks they know um, the, the heart, the mind, the soul of, of Christ and, um, and decides to lash out. So, I mean, I'm used to it. And um, occasionally one's inventive enough that I incorporate it into a sermon or um, mention it, but mostly I just block, delete and ignore. Well, I'm glad that uh, I'm not the only one who has felt the wrath of the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, my my wedding to my husband was, and it was uh, attacked very viciously, and they were protesting outside of our venue on that day. So yay! Um, so I I I find that some people take the word of God and they use it for. A, a negativity and I'm not sure as a reverend if you can speak to that if those are true Christians or are they true even uh, uh, followers of God well it's a, good, a very good question isn't it I mean um, you know the the Bible uh, is a book that we have never claimed as Christians um, uh, and or as Jews to have dropped out of the lap of God. I mean, this is a book that's written by hundreds of humans over thousands of years. And so as theologians, and we are all called to be theologians, um, and certainly from our Jewish brothers, sisters, and others who have through Midrash and through commentary over the, over the hundreds of years, you know, our job is to discern what is the word of God in that book and what is not. What is the voice of humans searching for God that mm, maybe is myth, maybe is something else, um, and maybe is just simply no longer, you know, um, the way we would possibly understand the word of God to be. And, and that's the job we all have as people of faith. You know, you can't possibly... First of all, take the Bible literally. Nobody can do that. 
Um, if you did that, first of all, you would be conflicted in every hour of your being about what to do next. Second of all, you would be arrested because you would be sacrificing live animals. Um, third of all, you would be protesting not only same-sex marriage, but shellfish eating outside of every red lobster in North America and, and against all mixed fabrics, by the way, um, rayon, nylons. I mean, Think about it. It's ludicrous. Over 600 strictures in Leviticus. If we were to uphold all of those, again, you'd be arrested. You would break laws in doing so. It would be virtually impossible to do that anymore. So first of all, so let's get rid of the idea that some people uphold the Bible in a more literalist way or fundamentalist way than others. I always say I just wish fundamentalists would be fundamentalists, would look at what is actually fundamental in the Bible um, as contrasted with over 600 strictures in Leviticus, you know, or what Paul said on a bad day, and actually look at what is the big theme here? What are the themes that we can take away from 3,500 years of history that's represented there? Um, and 3,500 years of searching for God. And one of them is liberation from oppression. Certainly. I mean, it's in this week's lectionary reading, Exodus stories, right? Liberation from oppression. And, and second of all, as Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself and never qualifies who that neighbor is. So, I mean, again, big themes. And then let's absolutely, let's debate everything else. Let's argue for our points of view. This is what we're called to do, all of us, as people of faith, uh, not just take the person at the front of the church or synagogue's word for it. So, um, so anyway, um, and, and if anybody really, you know, needs to discuss this, I, I would say, please just read your Bible and see what they were doing then. Because is the, the whole New Testament is nothing if not when you listen to the parables and the response to the parables and to Jesus' words, a theological debate. It's a theological debate that's going on there between Pharisees, Sadducees, um, between, you know, and, and Jesus. And this is a debate between Jewish factions for the most part. And yet we're not allowed to. Um, so, again, um, the same as I would say in political circles, nobody wants a one party state. There is no one right way. There is nobody who can claim, I know the mind of God. This is against the first commandment. I know the mind of God better than God does, and I'm going to tell you what that, uh, what that is and what that means. That's heresy of the first order. Did you see a rise in the, uh, the use of the Bible in the 90s and the 80s, or has it been in the last 10, 15 years? Because when I was growing up, I, and yet again, it might be social media, I did not see uh, fundamentalists use the Bible as much as they do today compared to 15, 20, 30 years ago. So from your perspective, as someone in the uh, person of the cloth, yeah. have you seen that? Uh, actually, they, they always were. The difference, I think, between, um, well, let's put it this way, the Christian right. Let's name it, because there are lots of evangelicals who are not of this persuasion. There's lots of Baptists I know that are open-minded, wonderful people. Um, so let's, let's talk about the Christian right. The Christian right has become a force uh, in the last few decades politically. That's what shifted dramatically. Before that, they stayed out of politics. You know, that was kind of mammon. That was, and, and they just, you know, proselytized, you know, among their own and to anybody who would listen to them. Then they got, you know, kind of got smart, like smart rats and picked up the political mantle and became a political force. That's where I think it got extremely dangerous partly, um, but also uh, in extremely, I would say, uh, heretical um, and unchristian, because they teamed up with, for example, as we see now, with the likes of Donald Trump and the, the very right-wing um, white supremacist, let's name it for what it is, elements in the Republican Party um, and uh, those that are, you know, homo and transphobic, those that are misogynist, all of this nasty, uh, you know, uh, nasty <laughs> amalgamation of heresies all, all became part of what they seemed to stand for. And they started to use their clout and their money to affect that discourse. That's when, that's when I think it became incumbent 
upon the church that is progressive, of which there are lots of us, to stand up and be counted and to say something and to speak a little bit more loudly and, and to, to do what I still don't think we're doing well enough, which is to say, this is not Christianity. This is not Judaism. This is not Islam. Whatever, you, and, and you know, people are doing that in all of our respective people of the book face, but we need to do it more consciously, more loudly, and in a more organized fashion, I believe. We see the rise of that down in the States. You are completely right. We see that Donald Trump has, yet again, even earlier this week, refused to uh, uh, say that white supremacist is bad. Like, he called it the Proud Boys. He said, stand up, stand by. And that just makes everyone cringe. Here in Canada, though, I don't think that's the same, right? Do you think that the, like, the Republican Party and the Conservative Party of Canada are, let's say, brothers and sisters while they might not agree on everything the same they do have similar views and they have they come from the same parents in some sense so do you believe that the conservative party here in canada is going the way of the republican party with the rise of the white supremacist viewpoints or do you believe that there is some hope that the conservative party of canada and i know you were an ndp M mpp so it's asking to make your opinion on another family but what's your views on the conservative party of today well, I think, you know, remember the term red Tories. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to see more of them. I mean, if, if we look back to the days in Ontario of Bill Davis' leadership, he sounds like a socialist by comparison to Doug Ford. Um, so uh, sadly, I see a drift in that direction, not nearly to the, to the degree you're right, uh, as in the States, but there are some very, very troubling signs. Um, look at the, there is, you know, sort of, the, the role of the RCMP, the role of our police forces in Canada, uh, the role of the RCMP in the Red Deer demonstration that just happened where you had white supremacists and the answer of one um, officer who said, well, you know, two sides, two opinions. No, neo-Nazis is not an opinion that's acceptable in Canada, but apparently it is in some places and in some minds. That's troubling. Um, I mean, the incredible racism around our Indigenous, the fact that for all the PR announcements from our government and governments of different stripes, very little progress has been made around education, clean water, land rights. You know, uh, we have a lawyer in our congregation who's been fighting these issues for 50 years. I mean, there's very little headway that's been made. You look down in the, in the south of the border, since the Black uh, Lives Uprising, as I would call it, through the streets of, of the U.S., some 19 cities have made changes in the funding to their police forces based on the primary demand of Black Lives Matter, which is defund the police. Uh, you know, of course, we all need a police force, but take some of that money, put it somewhere else. So not only into prevention of what police are supposed to be for, but also into calls for mental health issues, you know, calls for domestic. There's all sorts of other things we could do with that money. Um, 19 cities have acted on that, not one in Canada has acted on that. In fact, a very paltry little, you know, attempt was made in our Toronto City Council to defund by 10% and it was defeated, not only defeated, but more money was given to our police in the way of, you know, buying them body cams. So, I mean, again, I think we like to pride ourselves that we're a kinder and gentler nation and that, oh, you know, we don't, you know, we, we don't have racism like they do to the South. Yes, we do. We invented apartheid here. Let us not forget that. I remember a South African telling me this back, you know, in the 80s, uh, who was in Toronto, and he said, you know, we copied our apartheid system from your reservation system in Canada. It works so well here. Think about those words now. Um, we, it, we instituted it there. So, so we are every bit, uh, uh, you know, Orange Shirt Day, the residential school system, that was a kind of cultural genocide. I mean, we killed thousands of children. We buried them in unmarked graves outside of some of these buildings. We have nothing to pat ourselves on the back for. So, so I think it's a very, it's, it's, yes. Um, are we, are we not so obvious about it? Yes. Are we politer about it? Yes. But we are racist here and we have built our country on a basis of racism and our children need to learn that. And we need to learn that um, until we become worse, you know, and, and, and I think that's, uh, that's the truth of the matter.
Um, one of the areas that you talked about here, and it's been very prominent in society, uh, we have politicians from all stripes making comments on it, is the uh, taking down of statues across Canada of, let's, let's say it, Sir John A. Macdonald, first Prime Minister of Canada, the inventor of the residential school system. Now, I shouldn't say inventor, but he brought it in and he did have it in for a long time until 1996. It didn't go away. So when you look at the movement that is spawning from coast to coast to coast of Canadian citizens and Indigenous Canadians as well, taking down statues, What's your opinion on this? Do you think that statues are no longer the new uh, way to educate people and it's through textbooks? Well, absolutely take the statues down. Absolutely rename the, sta- the, the streets that are named after, you know, uh, uh, you know people who supported slavery um, or supported residential schools. These should not be people that we laud. Um, and I don't, I, I mean, why are we so vested in a statue? I mean, to go back to Christianity for a minute, again, this is the breaking of one of the commandments. Um, I mean, really, like, what is the problem um, we have? Why can we, you know, why do we have to have our graven images that we somehow feel worshipful towards? Times change, people change, we get, hopefully we progress, um, you know, hopefully we learn some things over history. And there's lots of people that we could make statues to now, that we don't. Um, I mean, you know, where are the statues acknowledging, you know, our indigenous heroes? That, you know, where are the statues acknowledging our queer heroes? Where are the statues acknowledging even women heroes? You know, I mean, where are they? Uh, and, and again, you know, this is this is part of a mindset that we forget influences our children still. I mean, we don't see these things because we walk by them all the time. But when we, when I used to see at Queen's Park, little, you know, young girls coming in there and seeing nothing but the faces of men pictured on the walls everywhere in terms of portraits, all of them, you know, valuable, all of them beautiful. Um, you know, you, do we not think that has an effect? If an Indigenous child's walking past a statue of someone who was responsible for their grandparents going to a residential school and what that meant, um, do we not think of that child? So let, let's look to the future rather than the past and let, let's look to what's best for our children. That would be uh, my advice. I, I agree wholeheartedly on that. Um, this conversation has completely gone the, like another way than I originally had planned, but that's what I like about these conversations. I don't have a script. I don't have questions. We just talk about these things. One area that I want to talk about, though, before you do go, because like I said at the beginning, was the my my first introduction to you was 2006 of that, by, that election uh, where you first were elected in Parkdale High Park, correct? I always forget that. I forget how it's pronounced. I always think it's High Park, Parkdale, but uh, Parkdale High Park. What made you decide to run? You were in a, you were, you had a successful career as a a minister. You had a successful career on the radio. And then you thought, you know what? Time to run. Well, it actually wasn't me. I was asked. um, I was sought out. So after the legalized same-sex marriage uh, happened and the the flurry of media around that, uh, and also the fact that we had grown our church, which was a church down on on its heels at a time um, that still exists, which I think is wonderful, um, uh, that had like two years left to live. uh, And we managed to turn it around to the point that we had, you know, a thousand people at a Christmas Eve service. So, I mean, all of this... I, I know now, with hindsight, makes one a very attractive possibility as a potential political candidate. Now, everybody knew my political views. They all knew I was on the left. Um, and all of a sudden, my MP at that time, Peggy Nash, asked if she could have lunch with me. I didn't know why, but I thought it was flattering. Um, so she asked me if I would consider running. Uh, and I took a couple of months uh, easily to consider whether I should. And then I thought, well, maybe... The issues that I care about, maybe I can do more if I'm sitting in one of those green leather seats at Queen's Park than I can in the pulpit. Maybe there'd be a, you know, a broader base there. Um, and I got two pieces of wonderful advice from two men, both of whose name was happened to be Victor. One said, you know, being asked to run by a political party is like being asked to uh, the 
the formal by the quarterback. It's very flattering, but you have to spend the evening with a football player. And I thought that was brilliant. The other, the other piece of advice came from the other Victor who said, um, oh, you've been asked to run. Well, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, but absolutely, I think you should go for it. So, I mean, with those two who are, and they were both right, by the way, absolutely right. Um, so uh, I, I did decide to go for it. And, uh, um, but had I known, I mean, I, you know, again, it's, it's helpful sometimes to be naive. Uh, had I known what the process would look like to run, win the nomination and then run and win the seat, I probably would not have said yes. You know? Because that, um, that yeah. election was bruising. The liberals was, threw it, everything it, under the kitchen sink at you. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, John McGrath, the elder, the, his son's now a journalist, but he said it was the worst uh, case of political smearing he'd ever seen in, in, in Canada. Um, it was pretty bad. I mean, they, they absolutely, they threw at me that I used to sell drugs when I was you know 15, which I never hid. I was a street kid from the age of 15 on. Um, and I used to preach about that, especially to our evening service members who were involved, street involved themselves, most of them with mental health and addiction issues. To, to them, it was a story of hope. And to me, it's a story of hope. Um, so, so, I mean, I preached about it. It wasn't, it wasn't a secret. That went out. Um, you know, all sorts of stuff went out. Um, it's, you know, really spurious stuff, like basically just lies went out. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it was, it, it was hellish. And, and quite frankly, what was worse for me was not that they were attacking me. And I don't say this to set myself up in any way, but, you know, I have children. And when you see your children have to go through this, I had to keep my son away from all candidates meetings um, because he would be so angry. Like I could just see the anger in his face. Uh, this is not healthy. Um, and, and also to our evening service folk who, as I said, the evening service was very precious and dear to my heart started at, at our, my church back then, which was a service outreach to people who were street involved had mental health and addiction issues. And, you know, it was like, okay, so there is no hope. So whatever you did when you're 15 is going to haunt you forever. And you will you always have to carry this. So it was, it was awful. Um, we survived. And I think it really did send a signal out there to people um, who try that kind of campaign in Canada, not just in Ontario, that, you know what, this can backfire. So um, we talked about our difference from the States before this. And, I, and I'm thinking, yeah, in some small way, I think we got – in that moment, we don't have to be like the Americans. No, uh, you were elected and you got the uh, gracious uh, title of queen of the tri-party bills, as you've already mentioned. Um, you reached out to all sides of the political spectrum. You reached out to the progressive conservatives, you reached out to the liberals who were in government during your time in office. Today's society, you would not do that. That would seem like detrimental to your political career if you ever wanted to do a bill with the progressive conservatives or the liberals. Why in 2006 2000 to 2015 you said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do politics differently? Yeah, um, here's the thing. Uh, I mean, I, listen, I'm, I, I'm a socialist and I don't choke over the word um, and I always have been and I couldn't be farther uh, and more different from conservatives um, but here but I also want to get and I think we should all want to do this as as elected representatives I also wanted to get something done I mean you know we know as LGBTQ uh, two plus people that getting something done even under regimes that we might not necessarily support is critical to our safety never mind anything else. Um, so I, I saw the impact of activism. Um, I saw the impact of getting laws changed. And so I knew that you could do that. And we started out small with the tri-party bills and we gradually moved on to more contentious issues. Um, this last November and every November, I will go back, coming up, um, to Queen's Park to commemorate one of the bills, the last bill that I did get passed into law, um, that was a tri-party bill called the Trans Day of Remembrance, where the entire house at question period, so everybody's there, has to stand for a moment of silence to commemorate the deaths of trans people that last year, because uh, trans uh, folk are still at huge risk of death, either by their own hand or others. Uh, in our community. And so 
got, last time we went back there, um, the conservative government treated all our activists who were sitting in the in the in the stands to lunch. And you know, there Stephen Lecce and Lisa McLeod were there. She signed on to the bill. And aren't we glad? Because that bill will not be undone. Neither will trans rights bill. Neither will, one hopes, touch with the banning conversion therapy bill, which I got done, which wasn't tri-party, which was just my bill alone. But most of the bills I got, including the trans rights bills, finally got done with all parties on, on board. Now, it took way longer. It took way longer that way. But now there's not a conservative government that can undo it. Think about that. So, I mean, here again, um, I think it's it's for everybody's safety. You know, I mean, we, yes, um, we can build on those building blocks. And that's how Canada has always, I mean, we've got Medicare from the NDP influencing liberals to do the right thing. We just saw the, the NDP influencing liberals to do the right thing, continuing some benefits, extending some sick days. Um, is it ever enough in my estimation? No, there's so much more we need to do, but it's something. And, and so I would say to, to those on the, on the left who say, don't get involved. You're just selling out by even running. Don't even play the, you know, the capitalist game. I would say to them, you can do both. You, know? you can do both. You can actually be elected. You can represent people. You can get things done that will save lives. And I can't emphasize that enough. That will save lives. And you can also say there's a better way of doing things and work towards it. These are not incompatible. One of the bills that you, the private member bills that you did mention, I, I, I'm, I'm cautious of the clock and I do want to try and get this part in because it is so prominent in today's society. You wrote a bill, private members bill that was passed about conversion therapy. One of the first in Canada if not the first North America first in North America. The, first in North America yeah. we have a federal government now who is trying to pass that we had a leader of the opposition Aaron O'Toole come out and say it was a divisive uh, issue it wasn't needed what do you say to Mr. O'Toole because he is not he's from Ontario he's from the 905 which is very uh, prominently liberal in their thinking i would assume what would you say to him right now? And what would you say to get that bill passed tomorrow? Well, I work with his dad, John O'Toole. He <laughs> was a nice, nice, little, nice man. Um, anyway, um, so here's the thing. Um, we banned it in Ontario uh, with that bill in 2015. We showed it could be done. Um, we sh showed it and, and we've lived with it for five years now. We've shown it's not divisive. We've shown, you know, religious people, you know, are still religious people who, who think that, you know, we're sinful. They can still think we're sinful. Just don't you know, put that on our children. Um, and, uh, and so we've shown it can be done here. So of course it can be done across the country. What the federal government can do that we cannot do in the provinces is criminalize it. What I would like to see with this bill is that it becomes criminal. And I was in Ottawa with the workings of this bill. I, I was, you know, with the cabinet minister, brought it in. I was there for the, the press conferences and stuff when it was first announced. Um, and support it. Of course, they support it. Um, so that's what they can do that we cannot accomplish in the provinces. Um, and that is what should happen. And when you're talking about conversion therapy, you're not talking about, um, you know, somebody standing up in a pulpit and I think, you know, saying hateful things. Um, I, I think that, you know, we have our own struggle with that as people of faith. Um, but you're talking about a, a way of trying to change who we are and to try to change who children are through psychological and psychiatric manipulation, medical manipulation. This is what we stopped in Ontario. Um, and this is what will be stopped and criminalized across Canada. So, so O'Toole doesn't know what he's talking about. And quite frankly, he doesn't even know the wishes and I won't name names here, but some of his, his caucus. Um, and he's definitely on the wrong side of this issue. Um, so I, I mean, I wish he would educate himself. It's not going to help him in the polls. Canadians have moved on. Um, get with the program. And, uh, and, and, and also to say, uh, liberals can pass this without his help. So stop putting a megaphone to, to Aaron O'Toole and just get it done. You know, the NDP is going to vote for it. Let's just make it happen. 
That's true. Since leaving politics, you have uh, gone back to the pulpit and you uh, started preaching again. Uh, one of the sermons that you just gave or one of the papers you just presented uh, is the one I want to ask you about because I, I listened to it and it was 22 minutes of pure gold, in my opinion. Jesus, the true communist. Explain, <laughs> because sure. I, I listened Absolutely. to it. I listened to it. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was true. But at the same time, communism is such a bad word in today's society. So putting those two words together, Jesus and communist, is not that uh, well respected in today's world. So why well, did you think all, this? You know, communism, like democracy, is a system that's really never been tried. <laughs> so let's put that out there. You know, we've really never had a truly democratic system, and we've really never, and that includes Athens, we've never truly had a, a, a communist system anywhere in the world. These are both ideals uh, that, you know, hopefully we strive for. Um, and communism, what does it mean? Each according to their uh, needs from each according to their ability. This is pure Christianity when you think about it. This is loving your neighbor as yourself. This is the parable of the vineyard. The people who showed up at five o'clock got paid the same as the people who showed up at nine o'clock. It wasn't their fault that they, sh they showed up at five or showed up at nine. Um, you know, it, we do not, basically what that parable says, we don't deserve our good fortune if we were born into privilege any more than we deserve our bad fortune if we were born into poverty. So he, let's finally be Christian. Let's actually uphold what Marx said in that in, in that uh, in the Communist Manifesto, and just look after each other because we're all human and we need to. Um, so there's that. There's also, of course, the example of how Jesus and his followers lived in the New Testament. They lived a communist lifestyle. They took from each according to their abilities, gave to each according to their needs. People with money look, you know, gave money to them so they could continue to, to proselytize and to, to preach. I mean, this is how they lived. So we get an example, and I, I would say it's the prime example of communism in action in the Bible. Um, this is what communism in its ideal looks like, also democracy looks like. Um, so, I mean, why, I, I mean, we're, way past the McCarthy era now. Hopefully, you know, we, with the Cold War is long since gone. Um, I mean, hopefully we can just look at these terms for what they are and strive for what they mean rather than the people who've uh, abused, uh, abused those terms. Obviously, Stalinism was not communism. Obviously, it was totalitarianism. <laughs> Obviously, what's happening in the United States right now is not democracy. It looks like totalitarianism to me, too. I mean, with the Electoral College, with voter suppression, with huge amounts of money it even takes to, to run. This is not democracy. So, I, again, let's look at... Um, ideals. And, and yes, it is provocative to say that, but I think it's also true. Um, so uh, yeah, the radical reverend continues. Awesome. Um, reverend DeNovo, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. So thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Bye -bye.